Well, I wanted to um, tell you my story, which actually goes back 38 years ago. We were at my parents' 55th wedding anniversary here in Tampa. I said to my sister, I don't know how mom has put up with dad for 55 years with that Italian temper that he has. And so I looked at Josie and I said, we may never be with someone for 55 years because we were both divorced at the time, but we will always have each other. And I'll never forget those words because on her way home that evening, a 17-year-old impaired driver at 80 miles an hour, he hit her head on. And they said before she died, she called out to me because we were probably the closest sisters without being twins. Every Friday before that, I was with her in that car going to the same location, but that night I was not. Talk about guilt. Why wasn't I in that car? Why did God spare me? Josie died on the side of the road at 12.35 a.m. It was the most difficult time in our lives, in our family lives. I started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I co-founded that organization. I wanted to help other people because I saw the devastation my parents were going through. I know now that I can rejoice in hope. I know now that I can be patient with trials because trials still continue to come. And I know now that I can persevere in prayer. We have been coming here for, actually we were doing dual churches for two years. We would go to a Catholic mass at our Catholic church and then come here for service. When I would walk in to the services here and hear the worship music, it was so fulfilling and so full of hope and joy. I would cry because it was so emotional for me to feel the Lord's presence so strongly here. Now my personal relationship with Jesus is totally within my heart and within my total being. And I couldn't be any happier today and more present with God than I am in my Mission Hill family. And I am so grateful and so thankful. Lake Carol, we were there. Carl and I went there because we truly love uh, Pastor Gary and, and, and Miss Lynn. And we went there for a service and Pastor Paul was there that day and they did a baptism. I was, uh, you know, he said, we'll baptize anybody. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I want to get up and be baptized. It was uh, difficult because my entire family was Catholic and it was very hard for us to do this. However, the strong belief in Jesus Christ and that personal relationship I was developing led us both to the baptism and it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And all I kept wanting to sing was that day was I ran out of my grave. <laughs> And it was just the most beautiful, beautiful moment in our lives. And we will treasure that forever. We will never forget that. And that's, I think that's truly one of the days that I surrendered and gave it all to God and said, I will walk with you. You did this for me, for my sins. I will surrender to you and I will walk with you. Good morning, church. Maybe you have a story that you want to share, a story of how God took your guilt and overshadowed that with His grace 
We've got a way you can tell us our, your story now. Just go uh, on our website to uh, missionhill.org backslash my story backslash, and, and there's a simple form that you can fill out to tell us what God has done in your life, and, and maybe we'd have the opportunity to share your story just as we've shared uh, Linda's today. Uh, the reality is that's what all of us desire it is a story of tremendous life change, a transfer, an exchange of our guilt and God's grace. The title of this series that we've been walking through in Romans is The Verdict because we've established the reality that one day we will all stand before what's called the great white throne judgment of God and there will be a verdict declared. And what we're discovering is unless we have an exchange of grace in place of our guilt, that verdict will be guilty. The book of Romans is all about that story and how that exchange takes place. And in fact, we've given you in these armbands and in these symbols that you see a, a simple way to remember this story. We're reminded that every human being, all of us, are, we're born in the same condition. That ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us are guilty. We're all sinners. Even though we may not think it, what happens is we look at our life uh, like you might put our deeds on a scale, and, and we begin to think, hey, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and the scale will balance out. But the reality is that's not the way it works, because the Bible says all of us are guilty. And the only just thing that can happen as a result of that guilt is punishment. And the, the only punishment that's right as a result of that guilt is death. But thankfully, the God that we serve is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He, he's the one that can make a way, and that's exactly what the cross represents. Our king died on our behalf. Our king became one of us so that we could look to him, so that he could take our punishment, so that we could receive his grace. And really, all of Romans is summed up in a couple of verses in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So I want you to think about that phrase because that's what this book in the Bible is all about, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news from God about Jesus that has great power for everyone who believes, and it shows us the simple way to be right with God. Have you applied the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life? Here's what I've learned. I grew up in a space like this. My dad was a Baptist pastor. So some of you know my story. I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. I mean, I was always there. So I grew up around church people. And, and what I've discovered is that often we've exchanged the truth of the gospel for religion. And we get caught up in the religious things of life and the rituals of life. And ultimately, we get let down. 
So let me begin with a question. Has religion ever failed you? Have you ever felt like you've been let down by church? If not, religion will fail you. If not, church will fail you. Even this church, we're not a perfect church. In fact, if you find a perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it because you'll mess it up. Because church is just made up of imperfect people who come together. It's kind of like a hospital for hurting saints. We recognize that we need God's grace to cover our guilt. We recognize that religion will never meet our deepest needs. Only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ will. Friend, I want you to understand something. Religion will always fail you, but Jesus never will. And while religion will never be enough, God gives you everything you need in a relationship with Him made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the message I want you to get today. Religion will always fail you. Church will often fail you. But God gives you everything you need in a relationship with Him made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Romans chapter 2 is all about. I want to begin reading in just a moment, but would you allow me to pray for us once more? So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we've gathered and we've sung praises to your name. We've worshiped you. We've prayed and asked for you to meet us here. We believe that you're capable of giving us everything we need that we don't have. You're able to teach us those things we've not yet learned, but we desperately need to know. And, God, you can even transform us. You can make us men and women that we need to be though we look in the mirror and recognize we're not there yet. So speak, Lord, and do what only you can do. Change us by your grace and for your glory. Take our guilt, our shame, our pain, and show us your grace. Show us your kindness. Show us your love. Lord, I pray again today that the words I say and even my thoughts would be pleasing to you, for you're my strength, you're my redeemer. And as a result of our time together, Lord, I pray that you would redeem someone else today. Lord, there's no doubt in my mind that someone who will hear these words is religiously lost. They're caught up in the trappings of religious behavior and ritualistic activity, but they've never trusted you. May this be the day of their salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a physical Bible, find that digital device in your hand. And if you can't do anything else, if you don't have the Bible app, just put it on Google and type in Romans 2 colon 1. I want you to follow along with me because we're going to read a lot of verses today and it's important that you understand this is the Word of God. This is not simply my opinion. Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. Say no excuse. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, here's what I want you to do, and here's why I wanted you to be looking at a copy of God's Word. I want to encourage you to underline or circle or highlight five different words in that one verse that we just read. We're going to look at this whole chapter, but this verse sets the stage for the chapter. And the first word I want you to look at is that word, therefore. I learned even when I was a child, when you see therefore in the Bible, you should always ask the question, what is that Therefore, uh, because it's always pointing back to something else. And in this case, that word therefore is pointing us back to chapter 1. And what did we discover in chapter 1? In chapter 1, we discovered that this is all about the gospel. There's power in the gospel. What is the power? There's power for the righteousness of God to be applied to our lives and to give us salvation. That's a big power that's found in the gospel. But we also learn that the power of the gospel reveals the wrath of God. Why is God full of wrath? Why is he angry? And we learned in this first chapter that the reason God is angry is because we are sinful. And our sin angers God. That's described in chapter 1, and we've talked about it in several ways. We've said there was an aversion to the truth. We don't want the truth. And so there's a diversion from the truth. We turn away. And then there's a perversion of the truth. We make our own truth. Is there any better way to describe our society today? We don't want the truth of God's Word, so we turn away from the truth of God's Word, and we make up a truth of our own choosing. The problem is it doesn't work that way. No matter who tells you, you can have your truth and I can have my truth, that doesn't logically make sense. Truth is truth. And what we believe is that all truth is God's truth. So what was taking place in chapter 1? Paul's telling us that people were ignoring the truth of God, then they were imitating God, and then as a result, they were insulting God. They suppressed the truth, they pushed it down, they ignored God's revelation, even though they should have known better, and as a result, they denied God's glory. They are bad. Say, they are bad. That's easy to get an amen, isn't it? It's easy for me to point out there and say, they are bad. But the second word that I want you to circle or underline or bold or highlight in your Bible is that next word. It says, you. He makes a change. In chapter 1, he's talking about they and them. But here in chapter 2, he points the finger back at you. Who is the you in chapter 2? It's us. It's those that don't easily find ourselves as much in chapter 1. Maybe some of those sin struggles don't define us quite as much. We're the moralist. We try to make right decisions. It could have just been the moral people of all people, but many people think that Paul was speaking now to the Jewish culture, the religious, the Pharisees. Those that would have carved out time in their schedule to gather together on a moment like this on the Sabbath. Those like us. So what does it say about you? The next words I I want you to circle or highlight or underline are, are these words. You repeated them earlier. No excuse. Say no excuse. 
You know what's interesting? In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says, just look at creation. Man, when you look at creation, I don't care where you were born. I don't care what culture you come from. I don't care what you've done. You have no excuse for seeing the handiwork of God. And we talked about, when we talked about that verse, all those different arguments for the existence of God. And it's easy for us to look at everybody out there and say, they have no excuse. But now, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to people like us. And he's saying, you have no excuse. I want you to understand, he says, that when it comes to judgment day, you have no excuse. And then he makes clear that judgment is coming. That's that next word, judgment. Everyone's without excuse because judgment is coming to everyone. I'm reading through Scripture at did you know that in the Bible plan that I'm reading, even this morning in the book of Hebrews, it says that judgment is coming to the house of God. So you could just outline this chapter, and we could just talk about God's judgment. I want to give you this, though that's not where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, but I want you to understand some things about God's judgment from chapter 2. In verse 2, you could see that God's judgment is based on reality. That's... <laughs> That's not the way we wish it was. We wish God's judgment was based on what? Our intentions, right? That's not the way I want to be. I, I tell this story often, but one of the darkest moments in my life, when I had really blown it, I had made decisions that could have cost me everything. I called my longtime best friend, Rodney. He was living in Virginia at the time. I was living in Georgia and I had a big old cell phone that was about this big. And, and I, I called Rodney and I said, man, I don't understand this. Why did I do that? And I said, this is not my heart. Rodney let me go on for a couple of minutes. And then he said, Paul, I just need to correct you. I said, what? He said, yes, it is. I said, what do you mean, yes, it is? He said, yes, it is your heart. Your heart, apart from Jesus, is exceedingly wicked and deceitful. And until you understand that you're capable of everything, regardless of your intentions, then you're not going to work through this. And the judgment of God's not based on how we think we are. It's based on reality. In verse 3, we're reminded that God's judgment has no exceptions. <laughs> I, I don't like to play golf. You know why I don't like golf? Because I'm really bad and when I, when I go out on the golf course, it, it makes me think things I shouldn't think. It makes me want to say words I, I don't want to say. In fact, sometimes when I'm out on the golf course, I say, hey, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking, but if you write it down, I'll sign it just to put my name to it. On, on the golf course, you can get a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? It's a do-over. Or what I really like to do. I can remember playing with my dad. It was a little better than me. And we'd get to the green. And there was this rule that if the ball was so close to the hole, you could get a, a give me. You could get a give me. And so, like, if I got on the green, I would say to my dad, you think that's close enough for a give me? He'd say, no. What God's Word is saying to us is there are no give-me's, there's no mulligans, there's no passes, there's no, hey, we're not going to worry about it. Everybody's going to be responsible 
for judgment. Verse 4 reminds us that judgment is going to demand that we repent. Philippians talks about this. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? That means even those who have denied Christ in life will acknowledge, I was wrong. God's judgment results in his wrath, his anger, verse 5. God's judgment will be based on what we've done, verses 6 through 10. Again, it's on reality. It'll last forever. God's judgment has eternal consequences. God's judgment is individual. It's not based on your grandmama or the fact that your daddy was a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. It's not based on, on somebody else in your family that was a part of the church. It's about you. It's without favoritism. It's not based on your race or your creed or your, or your cultural context. God's judgment is for everyone, it says in verses 12 through 15. In verses 16, it says that his judgment even in, includes our secrets. You all right? Do you know all of us have secrets? There are some things in your life that even that person sitting next to you doesn't know, but he knows. And those are a part of his judgment. That's verse 16. And then God's judgment is in the hands of Jesus is what it says too. So Paul's writing to a group of Jewish people who think their religion is enough to let them fall up under the same judgment as everyone else and be okay. But he's telling them that in light of judgment, your religion is not enough. And the Bible's full of this. We, we think of Nicodemus who was, man, what a righteous person. He was like the Billy Graham of the day and he comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, I'm a teacher of the law. I'm a leader in the faith, a Pharisee of Pharisees. What do I need to do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, you got to be born again. It's the same standard as everybody else. Don't you hate it when you're playing a game or you're doing something and you don't know what the win is? You don't know what the standard is? When you're watching a baseball game, when you're watching the Rays play, you know the team with the most runs wins. When you're watching the Bolts play, you, you know the team with the most goals win. When you're watching the Bucks play, you know the team with the most touchdowns win. But sometimes in life, it's hard to know what the win is, right? Like when your wife comes out and, and, and she's wearing a new outfit and she says, tell me how this looks. Does it make me look fat? Regardless of the answer, I'm just going to tell you, gentlemen, the win is to say, no, not a chance. When it comes to our relationship with God, the standard's always been the same. No matter who you are, no matter what your background. So Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. What about the rich young ruler? Again, another example, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. There's a whole message just in that. And he said, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've done all these things. I've kept all of these from my youth. I'm good. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have the treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
Standard's always been the same. What was the standard there? You've got to recognize that Jesus needs to be number one in your life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to step across the faith line. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to surrender. You're saying, Jesus is number one in my life. Nothing else matters. So as a result, Jesus would say in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, there'll be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That was the religious people Jesus was talking to. That's why the great Billy Graham would say in his perception, 70% of people on church rolls are probably lost. Do you know in our church we have around 3,000 members? I like to remind people that the CIA, the FBI, and Homeland Security couldn't find about half of those. But do we really think all of those who have identified with the church are truly living a repentant life and have a relationship with God? The evidence would tell us otherwise. I think of Dr. Jim Stock, who I just prayed with before this service. He's one of our deacons, a leader in our church, and his testimony is that he was a deacon in another church. He sang in the choir. He taught Sunday school. But one day, sitting under a gospel message, he understood that he was not saved, that he had religion, but he didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And ever since that moment, he said his life has changed and he's never been the same. The book of Revelation in chapter 20 it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and to him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That, my friends, is judgment. That is reality. So, so really the question I want to ask you in the next few minutes is, is there any chance that you are religiously lost? So honestly, if this is your first time in this kind of setting, or if you've come in knowing you're far away from God, I think this will be interesting for you to listen to, and I'm going to close with a pathway for you to begin that relationship with God, but I'm really talking to the folks who hang out here often, who call themselves a part of God's family, who say they're followers of Christ. Now, let me remind you of the main truth. The main truth is that while religion will never be enough, God gives you everything you need in a relationship with Him made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to be religiously lost? To trust in religion but not have that relationship? Let me just ask you five questions. Number one, are you self-righteous? The world would call this holier than thou. Now before you say no, let me just tell you, we're all self-righteous on some level. 
you drive around this area long enough, you're going to come across somebody. You're going to at least quietly think, man, sure I'm better than they are. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Say the very same things. So he just gave us that list in chapter 1. You remember what was on there? Homosexuality, women hanging out with women, men hanging out with men. Then he gives us all these things that ended up with something as simple as you're disobeying your parents. And then he says, hey, you're doing the very same thing. Are you? Because if you are and you don't think you are, you're self-righteous. So a good way to just test that is just look at something as simple as the Ten Commandments and say, hey, am I violating any of those? So how about, let's just walk through that. Maybe in your mind or on your paper or on your phone or whatever, you, you would just put a yes or no when I ask these questions. Like this one, you shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Well, do you ever put anything above God in your life? First question, most of us have uh, failed the pass-fail test already, right? I'm not even going to give you other examples on that because I know we've all blown it already. How about this one? You shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, what we're thinking about is Moses going and destroying the, the golden calf. But you know what? Idol is anything, even a good thing that takes the place of the best thing. Have your... Has your family become an idol in your life, your career, your financial well-being, the opinions of others, the kind of car you drive, the house you're in? We're not doing too good, are we? Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. This isn't just saying GD, though some of you probably do that. This is taking lightly the holiness of of God's name. The Hebrew people could not even write out the name of God because they looked at it in such a holy manner. Remember this remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. <laughs> you ever violate that one? Honor your father and your mother. Really, I think this even speaks if you look into the New Testament to the other authority figures in your life. You shall not commit adultery. Some of you are feeling great on that one. All right, I haven't done that. Well, then comes Jesus who says, all right, if you just thought about it in my mind, you've done it. If you've lusted, if you've looked at someone with that manner, you should not commit murder. Whew, finally made it to one. Well, then again, Jesus said, if you just hated your brother, You should not steal. All right. Well, maybe except for that Chick-fil-A sauce that they said it was, don't take another, I don't know. You should not give false testimony. You should not covet. Do you get my point? It's really easy to look down our sinful noses at the sins of other people. Our sins look way worse on them. But God is speaking to us. Do you think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, Judge not, 
that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye? <laughs> There's a log in your eye. Man, I'm guilty of this. And, and it's, it's just made me realize, here's what happens. Usually, the things that irritate us most are the things that we know we struggle with. Don't believe me, think on that one for a second. Those things that really make you mad when somebody else does it on some level, in some way, are probably the things that you struggle with a little bit. And so, you want to go get that speck out of their eye when you're walking up. I mean, imagine the mental picture. It's like you're walking up with a two-by-four hanging out of your eye and say, hey, you got a little piece of dust there. Can I help you out? You're knocking them upside the head with your two-by-four. Self-righteous, holier than thou. And saying, my sin looks bad when you do it. <laughs> Number two, are you unrepentant? Listen to verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will, he will render to each one according to his works. Man, I'm so thankful for the goodness of God. I love it when we sing that song, all my life you have been faithful. We run to the goodness of God, but I must never presume upon the goodness of God. That's what he's saying here. He's talking to religious people that are saying, God's so good, he's so good to me, he's gracious, and God's grace becomes a license to do whatever you want. And so because you've raised a hand one Sunday or you walked down an aisle or you've been dipped in the baptistry or, or, or you've made some kind of decision, you think you have a license to live anyway. And Paul's saying, if you're living an unrepentant life, then the likelihood is you're, you're not even saved. You, you can't just keep doing the things you've always done and yet proclaim that you're different. True repentance always leads to a turning away of sin. It's ultimately seen in our works. Works don't save us. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Jerry Bridges says holiness is, is not a condition for our salvation, but it's always a part of our salvation. Are you unrepentant? Do you have some secret or habitual sin that you're just holding on to? Your pet sin? That you've made excuses for. Number three, is it all about you? This is a way to know if you're religiously lost. Look at verse seven. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He's saying if you live your life and you've decided that, that you're living for self, 
It's hard to see that you've truly got a relationship with God because at the core of your relationship with God is a surrender of everything of self. Remember the message of the rich young ruler? He would not walk away. Have you walked away from that which you held dear so that you might walk into the arms of Jesus? Have you walked away from self so that you might turn to the Savior? He's saying you can't seek glory for yourself and seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. Number four, are you a hypocrite? This is about hearing but not doing. Knowing but not obeying. A friend of mine says it's not the truth you know, but the truth you obey that identifies you as a follower of Christ. James 1, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That word hypocrite, many of you know, is a theatrical word that comes from one who wears a mask who pretends to be something that they're not. Now listen, that's the number one reason people give us for not coming to church. I don't want to go there. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. Honestly, I think that's a bogus reason. Every time they go to Publix, you know what it's full of? Hypocrites. Every time they go to see the Bucks play, you know what that stadium is filled with? Hypocrites. But it is kind of sad that that's true in the church, isn't it? It is kind of sad that we do such a poor job at representing who Jesus is that that could aptly define some of us. So in verse 12, he says, For all... Who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. And all the way into verse 24, he talks about the importance of living out the faith. Let me just tell you something. In a world of social media, God is not fooled by what you put on Facebook. Everybody else may be. Isn't it interesting? Most people just put what they perceive to be the good things on social media. And the truth is, if it's, fil- if it's pictures, most people even filter that. <laughs> they find an app to help their picture look better than reality. But God's not fooled by the social media you. He knows the secret you. Religious rituals will never be enough. I would ask you today, are you religiously lost? What's the difference? It's the difference between the superficial and the supernatural. It's the difference between the outside and the inside. It's the difference between what you grew up culturally saying, I'm a Christian And what is globally true. Did you know my son is in a part of the world today on mission. And 
in that particular country, everybody on their driver's license identifies either as Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. But it has nothing to do with a real faith walk. It has to do with their cultural background. You can be religiously lost and call yourself a Christian. It's the difference between temporal and eternal. It's the difference between being judgmental and being just. It's it's the difference between being a hypocrite and being authentic. It's the difference between being legalistic and being life-giving. It's the difference between being dead and being alive. Jesus said it's, it's like being a whitewashed tomb when you're religiously lost. Think about that, a whitewashed tomb. You can pressure wash that marble and make it look clean, but all it is doing is covering a dead body. In another place, he said it's like a dirty cup, clean on the outside. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. He's saying you come to me and you've cleaned the outside of the cup and then you go to drink it and you're like, ah, And that's the life some of you are living. So what will it be? While religion will never be enough, God gives you everything you need in a relationship with Him made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want you to look back at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What I want you to do, I want you to cling to the kindness of God. I want you to run to the goodness of God. That's what you need You may express that through this religious organization. You may express that, as some are going to do today, through believer's baptism, which is a religious ritual. But don't you depend on those things for your salvation. You run to the goodness of God. What does that look like? It's a transformation of the heart. It's recognizing that your heart, like mine, is exceedingly wicked. And the only hope is that Jesus gives you a new heart. Dr. Christian Bernard, cardiologist, heart surgeon, says that after his second heart transplant surgery, the patient wanted to see his old heart. So the doctor took him over to a cupboard and he pulled out a jar with his old heart in it. He was the first guy in the history of the world to hold his own heart in his hands and according to the story the man said so this is what's given me so much trouble and then he handed it back to the doctor and he walked away some of you need a heart transplant You need to see for the first time what's given you so much trouble. And then you need to look to Jesus and walk away from that which messed you up.
Let's bow our heads together. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you in the next few minutes, man, to sincerely pray for those, maybe on your row, maybe that are in our other campuses, maybe that are watching from home, that have heard this message and yet they've not truly ever begun a relationship with Christ. And ask God to change them in these moments. Now, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've heard these questions today and, and you're curious, my goal was not to create unnecessary doubt. My goal was lead, to lead you back to the cross, to let you see that looking to Jesus and His goodness, to clinging to Him, is your only hope. Seeing that He's the only one that can save you. And that's true even if you've never thought about beginning a relationship with Christ. Remember that picture? All of us are on the same ground. We're guilty. No matter how good we are, our sins outweigh our goodness. But our King made a way. King Jesus, He died on the cross. And He rose from the grave so that you could trust Him. And have that relationship that changes everything. Just a moment, I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to give you an opportunity to begin that relationship with Christ. Whether, like Dr. Jim Stock, you've thought you've had that relationship or, or whether you came in knowing you didn't. Then after we pray, there are going to be pastors from this church that are standing at the ends of these aisles, right here where I am. I'm going to come around and stand here. And I'm going to ask you to come and say, hey, today I began that relationship with Christ. I'm, I'm not religiously lost. I'm gloriously saved because of Jesus. So how do you get there? You get there by calling out to God. That's what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So maybe you would just pray this prayer right now. Dear Jesus, just you and God, dear Jesus. I know I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. You're alive today. So right here, right now, I repent. I turn. And I follow you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. You're enough for me. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. But I want to give you first an opportunity just to let me know you prayed that prayer. If you prayed that prayer with me, beginning that relationship with God, would you just lift your hand up right where you are, all across this room? That's awesome. Welcome to God's family. Others of you that would say you did that, you did that, welcome to God's family. It's the most important thing. I'm going to end this time of prayer. Then Pastor Connor is going to be standing here in the middle. Pastor Zach's going to be to my right, to your left. I'm going to be down to my left, your right. If you just prayed that prayer and began that relationship with Christ, whether you raised your hand or whether you did it, 
I'm going to ask you to come and take one of our hand and say, today I was saved. So, Father, I pray that you use this time as we look to you, as we run to your goodness. God, I pray that we would cling to that kindness. We would rest in your grace. Lord, I thank you for that. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.